Hello, beautiful people. My conversation today is with Ali Abdal, and Ali is a YouTuber who went from zero to one million subscribers in, I believe, less than three years. So he's an incredible talent, and he speaks about productivity and how to get more things done, and he's a big reader, and he's got a great website with book notes. But I'm going to be upfront with you guys. This conversation did not turn out as well as I would have hoped. And the onus is all on myself for this. There were a few different factors that were working against me. One is that I didn't sleep and there are a bunch of excuses I could give. But what I want to point out is that how I came into this conversation was with a screen of questions. And I had more questions prepared for Ali than I had ever had for any other guest before. But the problem with this was that I was just trying to rush through these questions and I wasn't really internalizing and really listening as I normally have in the past. And this was a great lesson for myself, the importance of getting lost in a conversation. I think it will be really exciting for me to look back at this in five years, 10 years at this interview because this wasn't my best work and there were some, there's definitely gold in this episode, but I didn't do a great job of listening and this episode and publishing this episode is a reminder to myself to really get lost in a conversation. As always, I want to hear your feedback. Let me know what you thought of this episode at Hey Danny Miranda. I can take the criticism. I'm in the arena so that I can take the criticism so that I can get better. I know there's a lot I can improve on this episode, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about it at Hey Danny Miranda on Twitter. All right. Now, without further ado, this is my conversation with Ali Abdal. Interesting people, thought provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. So I'd love for you to start this off with the story of your headmaster at 16 years old changing your life by having a difficult conversation with you. Because that person at 16 is so different than the one I see today. You're 25 now, I believe. So talk about that story and how that changed the trajectory of your life forever. Yeah. So when I was in secondary school, which we call it, it's sort of like high school in the UK. I was 16 and I just finished my GCSEs, which are like the first big exam that you do. And I I did really well. I got like straight A stars across the board. And uh, so on results day, my mom and I were called in, invited in to see the headmaster because it was, and it was like, a, hey, congratulations, you did really good in your exams, bloody blah, blah. And that was all fine. And then he asked, what do you want to do at university? And I said that, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of applying to medical school because I want to be a doctor. And we had a bit of a, a conversation about that. But um, at the end of the conversation, he said, uh, he said that, look, I've got to, I've got to be straight with you and no one's going to tell you this because people are too polite about this sort of stuff. But and he, and, and the thing that he said to me was that I came across as very robotic and that it looked like I didn't have any enthusiasm for the subject 
And the way I was talking to him, I didn't smile once. And he said that that sort of vibe that you give off is not the sort of vibe they're looking for in medical school. So he said, and he said that you need to become more sociable slash likable when you're, <laughs> when you're talking to people. And that was like, damn, you know, cause that really hits you hard, but it was like the best thing he could have said to me because, you know, I still had two years to apply to med school. And so I made a very conscious effort to become more sociable and to try and become more likable. And I made it a point to then ask questions in class and anytime someone was giving a talk, I would make a point to think about, okay, what question am I going to ask at the end of it? And I would always put my hand up and ask a question. Uh, partly because of that, I also decided to take up close-up magic. I actually have a deck of cards in front of me right now because I've kept it up for the last God knows how long, <laughs> way too long. And I started performing at the local hospice and uh, even tried a gig at a restaurant, which was an absolute disaster. But all of these things helped me become more like high energy and more social, more hopefully more likable. And that helped when I was applying to med school. So that conversation with the headmaster really changed my life. And it was because he was willing to take the risk of hurting my feelings in the short term that I think I did okay in medical school interviews and ended up being a doctor in the long term. Have you, since then, have you had a hard conversation with someone where you had to comment on someone and it changed their life in that way? Do you, do you know if that, that has happened? I think I normally shy away from hard conversations. This is, it's, it's lucky that I haven't, I've, I haven't really had to do many of them. You kind of have to do them when you're a doctor in terms of, you know, just if, <laughs> if you're going to, if you as the team are going to withdraw medical care from a patient because they're not going to make it and you have to tell the family and that, that can often be a difficult, a difficult conversation. I remember once I, I was talking to, to a friend of mine who was, who was terrified of putting her hand up in class to volunteer information. We were doing dissection table things. So we had like a dead body on a table and the six people around a group. And she said that these sessions always filled her with dread because, um, you know, the, de the anatomy demonstrator who would be a doctor would call on people to be like, Hey, what do you think this nerve is? Or what do you think this muscle is? And we kind of had a, had a bit of a chat about it and exp explored her feelings and thoughts around it. And it was it ultimately came down to a fear of being thought foolish which is a, a quote from Epictetus, I believe. And she was just really, really scared that if she got something wrong, other people were going to think that she was an idiot. And so I kind of said to her that if, if you were in this group and your friend John got something wrong, would you think he's an idiot? She was like, no, of course not. I mean, you just got it wrong. And I was like, well, why would you think that you're an idiot then? Because, because you got the thing wrong. And I introduced her to the whole growth mindset versus fixed mindset and Carol Dweck's stuff around that. And a few months later, she was like, Ali, you know, that, that conversation about the growth mindset that I think that's changed my life. And she wow. now has actively trying to, trying to develop that. So that was, I guess it wasn't really a difficult conversation, but I feel like that was, that, that was a nice feeling. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And it also reminds me of the spotlight effect, which you introduced me. So can you talk a little bit about that <laughs> and what that is? Yeah. The spotlight effect is this uh, psychological phenomenon where we all walk around life thinking as if there is a spotlight trained on us. And it's like, you know, any mistake that we make, if we stumble in the street, you know, people are going to be looking and people are going to be, you know, judging us for the things that we're doing. And it's the spotlight effect because, yeah, we're literally walking around as if there's a spotlight on us. But what we don't realize is that no one cares about us. No one is looking at us. Like if I stumble on the street, no one gives a toss. Like they're all worried about how they're appearing and about themselves and about, you know, whether they're going to get about with their day. And it's like that. I think, I think there's a quote often attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt, which is that, You'd stop worrying so much what people think of you if you realize how seldom they do. 
And I often think about that. Like whenever I, some fear of what other people think will hold me back, I kind of think, nah, spotlight effect. No one's thinking about me. <laughs> they're just worried about themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. And you really, from my perspective, it seems like you've tried so many different things. You know, it from doing research for this conversation and following you, it seems like you've been doing, you've coded before, you've got into writing, medicine, video editing, public speaking, you've got magic, I'm just finding out about. So I'm curious, what skill of all those mentioned, or maybe one that I, I didn't mention, is the most important to you and why? Okay, so I think there's, there's two things that come to mind. I think firstly, the meta skill of learning how to learn stuff is like really, really helpful. Hey, it's helpful if you're a student studying for exams, because the more you learn how to learn effectively, the less time you spend studying for your exams, which means you actually have gallons and gallons of free time at school and university to do whatever else you want. Whereas a lot of people at school and university spend all of their time in this stress mode of, oh my God, I need to work. That's usually because they're doing pointless things like summarizing or highlighting or rereading. And, you know, just because we never get taught how to study effectively. So I think that's the first skill. And that kind of bleeds into any other skill acquisition, like recognizing things like tight feedback loops. And uh, you're like, what are the factors that make it easier to learn anything? So I think that is like a meta skill that really helps. But the second skill that I think has helped me most of all in my life is actually getting reasonably good at graphics, graphic design. Because knowing how to make something look pretty just applies to so many aspects of life. Like even in the medical field, anytime I've, you know, entered a poster presentation competition or a hackathon where we've got to present something at the end of it, my team has always ended up doing really well because I know how to make a PowerPoint presentation look pretty. And it's simple things like that, <laughs> that actually adds, adds such a huge amount of like the ability to add production value to everything that you do. And I think that was a big part of why my YouTube channel went all right from day one is that stuff looked kind of pretty and kind of aesthetic. And I attribute that to my kind of dabbling in graphic and web design when I was in, in secondary school. Yeah, you bring up your YouTube channel and it is obviously how I found you and how I came across your work. And I was, it was crazy because I was looking through one of your tweets and you said, you know, I just had a look through my old analytics. It took you six months and 52 videos to get your first 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. And so talk about that journey. Were you doing it strictly for the process or was it, well, talk about how that happened. You know, like the, you get six months and 52 videos. Are you, are you happy about what you're doing? Are you excited every day? Like talk about that journey. Yeah, it's just starting a YouTube channel is really interesting because I think YouTube in particular as a platform, it's 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 very gamified. Like as soon as you put out a video, you see like one or two views on it and you see like one or two likes and maybe someone will comment and you might have like two subscribers, but then maybe after three or four videos, you might have three subscribers. And so you always feel as if you're kind of making progress and that is a very addictive feeling. And, you know, uh, a lot of research shows that we get dopamine hits when we see ourselves making progress in in various domains. And so... When I was starting YouTube, I was thinking, oh my God, if I can get 4,000 subscribers within my first year, that would be the dream. That would be so sick. And so each each week I just put out two videos. And the way that I was thinking of it, I was, I was actually trying not to think about the outcome. Like I wasn't really looking at the views on each video. I was, I was following the advice that uh, my friend Simon Clark <laughs> gave in a video, which was that your first 50 videos are going to be terrible. So you might as well just get those 50 out of the way before you even start worrying about it. And I thought, okay, you know, Simon Clark is very talented and stuff. 
For me, I don't know anything about video. I suck on camera. I'm not very comfortable public speaking. Therefore, my first 100 videos are going to be terrible. And so I just need to get through those first 100 and then you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. And so <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about analytics or numbers at all. It's just one of those things where you do it. And if you're just focused on pumping out content each week, things just grow naturally, provided you can do it consistently. Mm. It's powerful. And it's, it's that approach that I'm actually taking with this podcast where it's like, I'm just going to do it a hundred times and see what happens. And that is something that, you know, if I had said, oh, I'm going to do X amount of downloads or, or some external metric, it's hard to, to really gain a sense of, am I progressing? Because th- that stuff is out of your control. And so when you have it in your control, that's really when the power lies within you. So the fact that you said, oh, I'm going to do it a hundred times, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So you've also mentioned that every time you've taken Twitter seriously, good things have happened. So talk to me about that and taking Twitter seriously, because that's the platform that I love. And, and uh, I think that I think it's such an underrated platform in general, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I really wish I'd taken Twitter seriously from day one. I only started taking it seriously like a year ago. And I, you know, my, my brother runs his own startup and he's, he's a big fan of Twitter. And so he was always telling me, you know, you know, you've got to get on Twitter. And so I started taking it seriously for about a week, uh, about a year ago now at this point. And in that week, I connected with a couple of YouTubers who I'd been looking up to, Thomas Frank and Sarah Dietschy, just by turning on notifications for their tweets and replying to when, when they were tweeting. And then Thomas Frank, who's like a huge productivity YouTuber, actually, you know, he DM'd me on Twitter and we were talking about sponsorships and stuff. And then he hopped on a two hour long Skype call with me where he gave me the ins and outs of how to get decent sponsorships. And he introduced me to his management agency, which I'm now part of, and I'm actually now an owner of uh, in part because I just love it so much. And so that conversation with Thomas Frank completely changed my life because all of a sudden, revenue of the channel like five to 10x basically overnight as a result of joining this management agency, which meant I could hire my first team member, which meant I could hire my second team member and third. And everything started to go well on YouTube since that conversation with Thomas Frank. Wow. And so I'm going to forever be, be grateful to him for that. But that just happened for one week when I was taking Twitter seriously. And then I kind of stopped doing Twitter for a while. And then a few months later, I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> the first time I took Twitter seriously, a really good thing happened. And I t- started taking it more seriously. And I started connecting with people like Noah Kagan and Kehi and, and Laura and Matt Elison and Tiago Forte, David Prell, these people who I'd been following on the internet for a while, they all hang out on Twitter. And so Twitter is really where you can make friends. And now I'm, you know, I would call these guys friends. And, you know, when I visit their cities, I'm sure they'd be down for like hosting me and, you know, hanging out. And that's just really cool. That's like the power of Twitter. Why do you think that is about Twitter specifically? What makes it such a platform for instant connection and friendship? Yeah, I think on, on Twitter, it's it's that really people come together because of ideas. And that sounds very cliche, but like it, it really is true. Like if Instagram is about the aesthetic, Twitter is about the ideas. And so you just find this tribe of people who are interested in the same stuff as you are. And you're like, oh, that tweet resonates with me. I wonder who this person is. Follow them be like, oh, wow, they tweet really good things. Check out their blog, check out their newsletter, start following their work. And eventually when you build a, a relationship with these people by you know, replying thoughtful things and stuff, they start to recognize your name. And now you're like, oh, damn, you know, we're part of the same, same group. And actually, uh, two weeks ago, um, there's this other YouTuber that I really, I really look up to who replied to one of my tweets. And I saw that he was following me. And I was like, oh, hello. So I sent him a DM literally saying, 
hey man, um, I think we have a lot in common and and we should be friends, lol. <laughs> and he replied immediately being like, my thoughts exactly. And I was like, yes, so good. <laughs> so I was really scared about this thing of, I want to be friends with this guy. I don't know if I'm allowed to just say that up front. And I said it and then we 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 we, we, we had a phone call and now, now we're friends and we're going to hang out post lockdown. So mate, power of Twitter. I'm so grateful friendship is working out for you. Maybe you could find a wife there. I know that's one of your, your 2021 goals is to find a wife. Yeah, so dude, it's that like, would be the dream. <laughs> so, you know, it's really interesting because you're, you just put out, you know, one of my goals for 2021 is to find a wife. And I thought it was a joke at first. And I was like, it's, it's it sort of is a joke, <laughs> but at the same time, it's, like it's, it's partly a joke and partly serious. <laughs> what percentage? 50, so 50, yeah. like probably about 50, 50. I want yeah. to take dating and stuff more seriously. I don't necessarily want to get married, but calling it finding a wife just sounds more interesting. So I thought, you know what, let's, let's just go with that. Right. No. And it's just fascinating because you're open about that and saying like, listen, like this is one of my goals and this is how I'm going to tackle this goal by making sure the time is blocked out on over here. Like that is so crazy to me. That is so interesting that you would take that approach. And it's like that analytical approach to everything. You're, you're doing that, not just for becoming a Gymshark athlete, you're doing that for finding a wife and you know, it, it's fascinating your mentality. So you're writing a book now, right? And it seems like you're having trouble writing this book from following you. Is that accurate? Are you have, were you having trouble writing the book? Or talk to me about that, the struggle. Mm. Yeah, writing the book has been, has been quite a struggle so far. It's been a struggle in, in just like lots of, lots of different ways. I, I don't like to over-glamorize the struggle because I think there's a lot of like struggle porn out there like, hey, look how hard <laughs> I'm working and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's not like objectively hard work. Like being a coal miner is hard work. Writing a book, typing away on a computer is, is not that hard. But it's just been a lot of things that I've, that I've had to deal with that I, I'm, I'm just not used to dealing with. So for example, external expectations from publishers and deadlines and having to do a book proposal to convince people to buy to buy the rights to the book because we've got a deal in the UK and now we're trying to get a deal in the US and internationally and that requires a proposal. And that meant I had to <laughs> sort of spend absolutely ages writing up a sort of 10-page marketing plan to basically convince a publisher that, hey, my audience is big. Please please be convinced that they'll buy the book and therefore you should you should sign me as a as an author. It's just stuff that I'm not I'm not used to doing. Like what I'm used to doing is just putting out useful content on YouTube and then leaving it at that. Whereas mm -hmm. in writing this book proposal, I had to sell myself a lot, which I feel very like deeply uncomfortable about. And now that we're in more of the writing stage, like the thing that makes writing good is usually when it's very personal. And there's a quote that I like, which is that um, <laughs> writing a book is easy. All you have to do is cut a gash in your arm and bleed onto the page. And I was interviewing a guy called Alex Benayan who wrote a fantastic book called The Third Door. Um, and he was saying as well that the more personal you can make your book, the more it's going to resonate with people. But it's it's deeply uncomfortable to write about yourself, uh, mm. especially in the form of a book. You get all the imposter syndrome. You get thinking like, oh my God, like why the hell would anyone want to read my personal story? This is meant to be a book about productivity. Surely I should be citing studies and famous people like Elon Musk. People care about him. But you know, I found that all of the writing that I enjoy reading is the personal kind. And so that's something I've been working through with my writing coach, just being okay with this writing about yourself thing, which apparently is something that every author struggles with. So there's nothing new, but it's it's been an interesting series of struggles that I haven't really done before. On the 
back to the selling yourself to the publisher, what was your thought process in terms of going to a publisher as opposed to just self-publishing because your audience is massive? And I feel like if you did, that would that would sell. What what was the appeal? Yeah, so I'd been I'd I'd, I'd had the thought in my mind of, for for a while of hey, it would be cool to write a book someday. And it was around August time that a publisher approached me and emailed me saying, hey, have you thought about writing a book? Uh, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And so that was how I got in, into the whole pub- publisher thing. And I thought about it for a long time. And I think there is still some level of some level of prestige in having a traditionally published book. And so for me, like, thankfully, the YouTube and the business is doing well enough that I don't need the book to make money. Instead, I see the book more as a brand building opportunity or as like a lead magnet that's out there in the world. And I think having a traditionally published book does like it is more of a prestige brand value, even if the royalties are like 10% when in reality, when the royalties for self-published book would be like 80%. So that was kind of the main reason I did it. Plus, I thought it would, it would be kind of fun. Like I'm used to self-publishing stuff. I can make videos on YouTube. I know I could self-publish a book if I want. But doing it with a publisher and like getting into that industry felt more, it felt more new. It felt more scary. And my general philosophy is if I'm scared about something, I should do it. And so that, that, that was the reason. When was the last time you were scared of something and leaned into it? Was it doing this book deal? Yeah, I think, I think the book deal was, was, was the last time where I was like really scared. Oh, actually, no. So since the book deal, there's been, there's been one other thing. The book deal was one. It was like, you know, all the fears around who the hell is going to read a book about productivity? Hasn't, hasn't that already been done before? Who would care what I have to say about productivity? You know, I'm, I just kind of got lucky with the YouTube thing. And, you know, I want to write about, you know, productivity that means something and like, you know, meaningful productivity and like who the hell would listen to a 26 year old talk about meaning of life? Like people have been trying to figure. So that was all of the stuff that was going through my head uh, as I was deciding, weighing up whether to say yes to this book. But then I just sort of thought that I, I had a conversation with my housemate <laughs> and she said, Uh, that don't you always say that you should just lean into the things you're scared of? And don't you always say, you know, would you regret doing this or would you regret not doing this? I thought, well, I'm only going to regret not doing it. I probably wouldn't regret actually writing a book. So that's why that happened. Um, But then since then, I've done another thing that I felt really scared about. And that was starting a live live online course. So I've got this live online course called the Part-Time YouTuber Academy, which is now a six-week course where you know, we take a few hundred students and we charge them lots of money for it. And we sort of take them through a, like a program to become part-time YouTubers. And initially I was thinking that I would just create a standard online course, you know, the evergreen self-paced. I just recorded, you know, about a hundred videos about it. My editor would edit them and we'd chuck, chuck it on Skillshare or on my own website for like a hundred dollars. And then I was chatting to Tiago Forte and David Perel who run the courses Building a Second Brain and Rite of Passage. And they were saying that, look, man, you've got to get away from this uh, small thinking mentality of charging $100 for a course. Like, you know, only 2% of people complete a self-paced online course. And do you care, like, do you really care about transformation for the people who watch your stuff? And I was like, yes, I do. And they were like, well, if you really care about transformation, you have to do it live and you have to charge decent money for it because otherwise people won't take it seriously. And that felt really scary. Like I'd never really sold anything before, let alone something at like a thousand to $5,000 price point. And I was like, you know what, this feels really scary, but <laughs> that's another case when leaning into the fear is, is, is helpful. And so we ran our first cohort in November of 2020 and that had about 400 students and everyone, or rather most people loved it. And 
we've just sold out of our second cohort. We launched, opened the cart earlier this week, and within four hours, we'd sold out of all our spots. And yeah, this course has now generated about $800,000 in revenue just off the back of <laughs> this conversation with Tiago and David, who were like, mate, you've got to do this as a live course. So yeah, <laughs> leaning into the fear really helps. There you go. And there's also the power of Twitter coming back because I don't know if you met them through Twitter, but I know they're huge there. So it's yeah. crazy how one conversation can just have a huge impact like that. And specifically going onto the YouTube track and, and the course track is like, if you're looking at that and do you separate, let's say I'm trying to grow this podcast, right? Mm. And I want to grow this podcast on YouTube. Mm. Is that different than someone who's strictly becoming a YouTuber or recording videos front face? Do you think about that differently? Is that a different approach? This is a completely selfish question. I think it's a slightly different approach. If you're trying to grow a podcast on YouTube, you don't really have to worry about generating ideas. The mm -hmm. ideas will come from the content that you're creating anyway. And so growing a podcast on YouTube is more about a repurposing strategy rather than an idea generation strategy. You also don't really have to worry about storytelling. You don't have to worry about keeping the videos engaging because presumably you're going to do what Joe Rogan does and just have clips, you know, clippable moments from the podcast, which is a great way of growing a podcast on YouTube. So all of those things, like it's, it's probably easier to grow a podcast on YouTube than it is to become an actual YouTuber just because there's so much more to worry about when you're being an actual, <laughs> a proper <laughs> YouTuber. <laughs> That's interesting, you know, because... It's like one of the things that you see Joe Rogan do it. He clips up a million clips or he has a team do it. And then he has thousands of pieces of content. And are you, do you subscribe to the theory, like the more content, the better and just build a library of content. Is that, is that the approach? Broadly? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think given everything, given, given that all news feeds are algorithmic these days, you're not really going to oversaturate the audience. This is something Gary Vaynerchuk says a lot that, you know, the people who engage with you most will be seeing your stuff the most. And that's, that's great. So mm. yeah, I think basically the more content, the better. And Gary V says a hundred pieces of content on every social platform every day. And, <laughs> you know, that's a good ideal to aspire to. I think he says, you know, a hundred pieces of content a day. And he, he's like, well, 50 of those are on Twitter is like what he says. But anyway, um, you, you've mentioned before that Tim Ferriss has made the biggest impact on you other than your family. And first of all, I'm curious about why Tim Ferriss. And then I'm also curious who's second in that uh, list of who's made the biggest impact on you. Oh, okay. So I'd say Tim Ferriss has probably had the biggest impact on me outside of my family uh, because of the four-hour work week. So I read that when I was 17, I think. And that was the thing that first turned me on to this idea of the deferred life plan and mini retirements and financial independence and passive income and automating and outsourcing. And just, it just opened my mind to this whole world of possibilities. And ever since I read that book, I decided that, you know what, this is the sort of, like, I really want to work towards this financial independence thing. And so I set the intention that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going into med school and I want to be a doctor, but I want to do medicine for fun. I don't want medicine to be the thing that pays the bills. I want to have my own like tech startup or something that generates passive income that can pay the bills. And so that became my North star for the next like eight years. And because I always had that in the back of my mind, I think that was what helped me set up my first business and my second business and my YouTube channel and the third business and all these things. And so just through that book, I would say that Tim Ferriss had changed my life. 
but also through his podcast that I started listening to, I think in 2016, just coming across and finding really cool and interesting people through his podcast that I hadn't known before. Um, so yeah. And the weird thing about that is that I've only consumed like 2% of Tim Ferriss's content. But if I were to meet him in real life, I'd probably break down in tears because of how much of an impact he's, he's had on me. And so sometimes if I, if I'm feeling sad that a video isn't doing, isn't doing very well, I kind of think of that and, re and remind myself that your impact on someone isn't necessarily proportional to how much of your content they consume. That, I love that. And who's second on your list of, of the biggest impact on you? Yeah, I think second on the list would probably be Austin Cleon. And in fact, just like yesterday, I ordered these three books on Amazon Prime. This is Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work and Keep Going, which is Austin Cleon's like triple trilogy thing. And it was Show Your Work that I read in 2015, late 2015. And that was the thing that encouraged me to start my personal blog. Um, he calls this a book about self-promotion for people who hate the idea of self-promotion. And in the book, it's like very short. It takes like 10 minutes to read. He just basically broke down all of my fears about putting myself out there online. And so I started my blog in January of 2016, which is five years ago now. And that was the baby step that I needed to become comfortable with putting myself out there online. And if it hadn't been for the blog, I probably wouldn't have been comfortable to start the YouTube channel. And if it hadn't been for the YouTube channel, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. And so I'd say Austin Cleon is probably number two on the list of people who's most changed my life through writing this fantastic book. Yeah, those books are incredible. I, I've read through those books so many times and, and sent them off as gifts and they're really incredible. Mm. And so what were some of your fears when you were just starting out? Was it like, oh, people are going to judge me? Who am I to post my stuff? Talk to me about those fears in 2015 when you're just getting started. It was exactly that. It was, you know, the fear when I was just starting out. People are going to judge me. Who am I to talk about this stuff? People are going to think I'm a narcissistic, arrogant twat for having the audacity to have my own, you know, aliabdal.com as a domain name. Who would listen to what I have to say anyway? What's the point of doing this? It was all the all this sort of stuff in my head. But then I read Show Your Work. And actually, my my very first blog post in January 2016 was called How to Get Over the Fear of Personal Blogging where I kind of I, I kind of realized the power of writing a blog post to help solidify your own thinking. And so I sort of wrote that as a pep talk to myself, basically saying, you know, point number one, people will judge me. Point number two, no one will care what I have to think. Point number three, how am I qualified to write about stuff? And I just kind of broke down all of those points using the fodder from Austin Cleon to show your work. And that's how the blog started. I love it because my first blog post was just start and it was just about starting and, and getting going. And like, you know, those first moments are what you'll remember forever. Like, and, and that's exciting because, you know, 10 years from now, you'll be able to refer back to that blog post and, and have that record. It, it's such mm. a, it's such an interesting thing. Um, one of the things that I love that you do is you have these deep dives on your YouTube and I'm curious, who's the most interesting person that you've had on that? Is it Austin Cleon? Most interesting person. I don't like to think of people as having different levels of interestingness. <laughs> it's just like a model, a model that I try not to subscribe to because I think, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? So, Let's talk about it. I think, hmm, most interesting person. It feels a bit dirty in my mind to be rating people on their interestingness. I think because mm. I've often had the fear myself that maybe I'm not interesting enough when I'm in a conversation with someone. And if I'm having a conversation with someone, I'd sort of feel 
feel the need to eject from it as soon as possible so as to not run the risk of not being interesting enough to have, to have the conversation with them. And one thing that I've, I've realized over time is that everyone is interesting. It's just, you know, how much, how much, how, 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 how deep do you want to go? And so I try to not think of people in the sense of this person is more interesting than another. Yeah. I love that. And that's really interesting because, <laughs> because it, it's like, Everyone, if you ask questions about them, has a story, and and it, it's um, I, I like that. I'm grateful that you you brought that perspective. So, with those deep dives, what why did you start that? Because I think that was such a, a fascinating idea, and I, I love seeing those long form conversations where you just act as the interviewer, where you're in my seat basically, and you're just talking to people. Why do you why do you decide to get going on those? Yeah, so I st- I started the deep dive series, I think, because about a year ago, I was I, I was asking myself the question, which I, I I often ask, which is that where is my brand slash content going to be in ten years time? And I was thinking about Tim Ferriss and the Tim Ferriss method of initially it was all about him. He was writing the books, and it was about all about him. But then, in like twenty fourteen or fifteen, when when he started the podcast, it switched to not being about him, but actually being about shining the spotlight on other people. And I think that is a big part of why the Tim, like Tim Ferriss, has such longevity with his brand, and why so many people, including me, would say that he he's changed our lives because he switched to that thing of shining the spotlight on others. So I was thinking, okay, given that I want to be the next Tim Ferriss, <laughs> why don't I start doing this like from now on? And so I listened to a lot of his podcasts on other podcasts where he talks about the art of podcasting, and one thing he always says is that. When you have a podcast, you can just have conversations with people that you wouldn't otherwise get to have conversations with because it's very, it's, you know, the picture of, Hey, come hang out on, come and do a live stream on my YouTube channel that has a million subscribers is a pretty compelling sales pitch for a lot of people. Whereas, Hey, I'd like to be your friend. Let's chat is not a very compelling sales pitch for a lot of people. <laughs> and except so, that one guy, except on that Twitter. one guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it works on Twitter, but <laughs> otherwise, yeah, I think it's, and I kind of view the live streams as an excuse just to have a, have a conversation. They don't perform very well, actually. Like all the live streams we've had so far have resulted in a negative subscriber growth. Like people no actually unsubscribe when they see a live stream because they're like, what the hell, two hours? Which I couldn't care less because <laughs> I actually care much more about having a conversation. Yeah, that's great that you don't let it affect you. Do you think it's because it's gotten to such a tipping point that you don't let it affect you? Would it have it affected you at a thousand subscribers? Like, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I think if I had a thousand subscribers and I was losing a hundred every time I did a live stream, I would think, okay, this is not a good business decision. But when you have 1.3 million and you're losing like 50, <laughs> you're like, you know what? I will happily lose those 50 subscribers to have a conversation with Austin Cleon. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And one thing I, I love about you is you're just such a curious individual. You know, you're always asking questions and you're always, it seems like trying to figure out something next, like what's next. And, and you actually have something on your the bottom of your website where you're you're just asking people to have a coffee or you said if you fancy taking a trip to the UK and want to chat I'll buy you a coffee no questions asked and I think it speaks to your your level of care for the audience and also your curiosity so where did you get that idea to start this this coffee free coffee for anyone who who wants it yeah so the free coffee idea is is great. I got it from a guy called Patrick McKenzie, who goes by the online name Calzumius. He used to post a lot on Hacker News and now has a blog and now works for Stripe in Japan. 
Uh, but I used to browse his blog a lot because it was all about like software engineering and I was in super into that stuff. And I saw that on his about me page, he just had a, a line saying, hey, you know, I live in Tokyo in the whatever region. If you're around the area and you want to chat software, message me or email me and I'll buy you a coffee, no questions asked. And I just thought, wow, that's such a great way of meeting people um, and using your like internet fame as a way to actually hang out with people in real life. And so about a year into my YouTube channel, I, when, I, when, I, <laughs> when I took my website seriously, I just put a little thing on my website saying, hey, you know, if, you're, if you happen to be around Cambridge, email me, uh, coffee at aliabdal.com, and I'll just buy, and I'll buy you a coffee, no questions asked. And in the last like three years, I've probably met up with at least 100 people through that. And some of them have ended up becoming friends, some of them I'm still in touch with. Uh, a couple of them have even started working for me. Um, have I had any romantic prospects because of it? No, I haven't. But <laughs> you know, I'm holding out hope that maybe one day that'll happen. But it's just been it's just been great. Like you know, you you get to meet people in real life and share the human connection in a way that isn't really possible online. Yeah, and why have you kept it up? Like you, like you're, just, are you, do you plan on keeping it up forever, or do you think you'll take that down at any point? Like, at what point is this like unfeasible, or or does it make sense? I like I like the idea of keeping it up forever. Um, it started to get to the point a few a few months ago um, where it, it was starting to become unfeasible because we'd be getting kind of 10 emails a week. And it's, it's like hard to make the time to have 10 separate coffees a week, especially because I still have to make content. And I think I was still working as a doctor at the time. But one thing we realized is we can just actually have Tuesday afternoons as a come and hang out with Ali day. And so I would just sit in a coffee shop in Cambridge Town Center and people would come in and just hang out and it was great like often we'd have like between six uh, between like four and eight people at, at a given time so and awesome it became sort of like a group hang hangout where they would then become friends with one another and it wouldn't just be you know them asking me questions but it was just like a general we're, we're going to hang out and chat about whatever so that worked really well and so i think that's a way of scaling up the ability to meet people one-on-one that's so cool i love that you do that man and one thing that i wanted to talk to you about separately is that it seems like you're really comfortable with yourself. And I only know that or, or it seems that way because of YouTube watching your videos and it comes across like you're very comfortable with yourself. Do you think that's true? And if you do think it's true, how have you gone about developing that comfort with yourself? Yeah, I think, I think I'm comfortable with myself in a lot, of, uh, a lot of ways. I think the main one is that I just don't care if I look like an idiot. I think just again, you know, Epictetus's thing that you know most of humanity's problems come from the fear of being thought foolish, and I just have zero qualms about being thought foolish, which lets me do things like talk about my love life on the internet or like talk about my bowel habits or just like stupid things like that, um, which I guess gives the impression that I'm I'm comfortable with myself. I don't I don't really know what that phrase means. Like if someone were to tell me that I was arrogant and mean, I would feel absolutely devastated because I don't want to come across as arrogant and mean. But if someone says to me that, oh, your nose is too big or I don't like your videos, I was like, okay, cool. That's fine. <laughs> you post those sometimes on your Instagram stories. You just, you're, you're happy to share. You're happy to be like, look, this is what, this is what someone said about me. That's mean. And I, it's just really interesting to me. Yeah. I love getting hate comments. It's great content for my Instagram story. And it means I don't have to worry about creating content for Instagram if I can get <laughs> enough hate comments. I love it. Um, so you've obviously been doing YouTube now for three years and so I'm curious, what's one feature you'd like to add to YouTube if you could on the back end? Is there something that you wish you could say like, oh, I wish they had this feature? Hmm. Good question. 
If there's one feature, I okay, so I've, I've got two features I would add to YouTube. Number one would be the ability to A-B test titles and thumbnails from within YouTube itself. That's because title and thumbnails are such a ridiculously important part of having a good video. And if you really want to be data-driven in your approach to titles and thumbnails, you have to use external software like TubeBuddy, which is like $50 a month to be able to A-B test thumbnails. So we do that and it's helpful, but it would be nice if we could upload a few different thumbnails to YouTube and it would figure out because it can like, you know, algorithmically what the most clicked one is. That would be the dream. The other feature that I think would be nice, <laughs> nice for YouTube to have is a way for, and uh, the, the, there are ways to hack this with Chrome extensions, but just a way for your YouTube homepage to not show your analytics front and center, because I don't know if you've had this when you, when you upload videos, but you see how your video is performing relative to your last 10 videos. And so if you get a video that's like, you know, seven out of 10 or eight out of 10, that means it's doing badly. If it's one or two out of 10, you're like, yes, I'm winning at life. And I found my self-worth and self-esteem to be far too <laughs> correlated to that particular metric. And so I, over time, I've gotten better at not really caring about it. But it's, it's one of those things where I think, ugh, I feel like it would be healthier for everyone if that metric wasn't front and center. But they want to keep you addicted to the platform as much as possible and just make you feel good or bad depending on the day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of messed up of them. But I guess that's their whole approach and that's how they that's how they make money keeping you on the platform. Um so you have 1.3 or 1.4 million subscribers. Do you think fame has changed you in any way or do you think you're the same person? I think fame has made me more comfortable with who I am hmm. in that like in the past I would have probably thought Maybe it's weird to be open about like how much money you're making. Maybe it's weird to be open about the fact that I'm looking for a wife. But when you have like a million people following your YouTube channel that seem to love that sort of content, you kind of think, oh, well, you know, it can't be that bad. Maybe some people will find it weird, but there are enough people who don't find it weird to sustain a very lucrative full-time living for me. So that's, so that's great. Um, <laughs> I, so one, of the, one of the few types of comment that I that sort of gets to me in 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 some capacity is when people say stuff like, "Hey man, I've been following your channel since 2017. Back then, you were all you cared about was helping people, and you were authentic. And now it seems like all you care about is making money, and the only videos you do are sponsored videos. And it's just obvious that you now the only thing you care about is money. And I was think I, I I often think that there must be some kind of truth to that. Maybe the way I come across on YouTube has changed over time as I've become more more famous and more rich thanks to YouTube. But I think it's, it's like I cared a lot about money at the start. I just didn't have much of it. Uh, and the weird thing about YouTube and, and, all, and all of these platforms is that as the creator, you do have to create that image that, hey, guys, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for you. You're, you know, this is entirely altruistic. I'm not doing it because it makes me good money. I'm doing it because I want to help you out. And, you know, we're all friends here. And that very... <laughs> <laughs> somewhat sinister parasocial relationship is what fuels people following channels on YouTube and TikTok and stuff. And so there is always an element of that. And so, yeah, I probably have been changed <laughs> in inverted commas by fame. But then people who like my, my friends from university uh, often comment that, Hey, it, it's, it's, it's great to see how you're still being yourself and still talking about marriage and still being weird, even despite the fame. So I'd like to think that the fame hasn't changed me that much, but there's probably an element of unconscious bias where I don't notice that it has. Yeah. You mentioned that that's the one comment that can potentially get under your skin. 
because you think that there's potentially some truth to it. Is that is that right? I think so. Yeah. I think the comments that would get under my skin and a, a lot of other creators who I'm, I'm friends with have this issue, have this as well. The ones that get under our skin are the ones where we know that there is an element of truth to it. So it's the truth about life. When when someone points out something that is is slightly true, you you get mm. mad about it. It's so weird how that works out. Well, it's been a pleasure having you. Nice. That's all good. Thanks for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. That was my conversation with Ali Abdal. If you enjoyed this conversation, or if you didn't, let me know on Twitter your thoughts at Hey Danny Miranda, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening until the final seconds. I appreciate you tremendously, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace.